This audio resource is provided for informational and educational purposes only. This information is not intended as a substitute for professional advice, diagnosis, or treatment, and you should not use this information in place of the advice of your medical, psychological, or legal providers. Hello, and welcome to Brain Talk, a podcast by the Brain Injury Association of Virginia, where we have conversations about brain injury, its impact, and the path to recovery. My name is Alex Crickey, and I'm your host for this episode, where we will be discussing the most common type of brain injury, concussion. I am a writer and artist working with the Brain Injury Association of Virginia as a communications contractor, and I, like many other people around the world, have had a concussion. Several years ago, I was in a car accident, and what initially seemed like a minor case of whiplash ended up giving me a crash course introduction to the world of concussion and mild traumatic brain injury. To say concussion is a poorly understood phenomenon would be an understatement, and for individuals dealing with the impact of a concussion, that uncertainty can be one of the most challenging aspects of the condition. We hope that through today's conversation, we will be able to shed some light on concussion by diving into the first-hand experiences of someone who has seen all sides of concussion, first as a family member, then as a person with a concussion, and now as a medical professional. But let's start with the basics. A concussion is a type of mild traumatic brain injury, or MTBI, defined by the Centers for Disease Control as being caused by a bump, blow, or jolt to the head, or by a hit to the body that causes the head and the brain to move rapidly back and forth. This rapid movement of the brain inside the skull can cause bruising and damage to the brain's fragile tissue, which can have a wide variety of effects and consequences. While many other animals on our planet have protective casings around their brains to prevent these exact types of injuries, human beings, we aren't so lucky, which is why a concussion can happen to anyone, anywhere, at any time, potentially causing serious harm and long-lasting effects from even seemingly minor accidents. As you will hear in today's episode, contact sports, car accidents, and falls are some of the most common ways people sustain concussions. But more serious incidents like assaults, intimate partner violence, and strangulation can also cause concussion. And concussion has almost as many consequences as it does causes, and can affect the mind and body in many ways. People with concussions frequently experience confusion, difficulty concentrating, forgetfulness, headaches, dizziness, fatigue, and many other commonly associated symptoms. But concussion can also cause difficulty with mood swings, depression, and anger. These symptoms can last for just a few days, or in some cases, they can last for years. But regardless of severity, our growing body of knowledge about MTBIs continues to reveal just how damaging any degree of concussion is on the human brain. In this episode, we will be speaking with Riley Power. Like myself, Riley has had a concussion. A few, in fact. Riley was a star athlete in her high school years when concussions sidelined her athletic ambitions eventually leading her to pursue a career in medicine where she now works as an occupational therapist at Tree of Life here in Richmond, Virginia, where she helps individuals facing the challenges of concussion and other brain injuries. In this conversation, Riley and I discuss our own experiences and struggles with concussion and how ultimately to overcome those obstacles and find a meaningful path forward through the challenges of mild traumatic brain injury. Hello, and thank you so much for being here with us today, Riley. I was hoping we could start off this conversation with you telling our listeners a little bit about yourself and your background and work 
at Tree of Life as an occupational therapist? Sure. Um, so I graduated from BCU's occupational therapy doctorate program in 2019, and I have worked at Tree of Life here in Richmond for about two years now. Tree of Life is a post-acute residential rehabilitation program for adults with acquired brain injuries. Um, at Tree of Life, OT services focus on um, safety and independence for basic self-care, independent living skills, sleep, community reintegration, purposeful engagement for vocational and leisure pursuits. Um, so the whole the whole host of um, what OT potential could be, um, we get to do here. But prior to my work here, um, because Tree of Life um, is both a long-term care and transitional rehab program. But prior to that, um, I completed clinical work and my doctoral capstone at the um, Sheltering Arms and at the McGuire VA Medical Centers, both here um, in Richmond in the polytrauma program. Um, I also worked in outpatient brain injury at the Center for Neurorehabilitation Services um, prior to OT school. So that's kind of my, my background in the brain injury world. So for our listeners who might not know what an occupational therapist is and don't have experience with it themselves, could you give us a quick rundown of what exactly occupational therapy involves and what it hopes to accomplish? Yeah. Um, so an occupational therapist is a rehabilitation professional who helps people that are living with the effects of an injury, an illness, or a disability learn or relearn how to do the things that they want and need to do every day to fulfill those valued roles and routines um, that we all, we all have. Um, these things that we need to do every day are occupations from an OT's perspective. Um, and they can be anything from basic ADLs like showering, dressing, toileting, um, to more like independent living skills, grocery shopping, meal preparation, medication management, um, to community reintegration, sleep, sexuality, work, leisure pursuits. Um, OTs address with their clients either through rehabilitation interventions or through compensatory strategies, the physical, cognitive, and psychosocial barriers to a client's successful occupational performance. And how does brain injury fit into occupational therapy? <laughs> how does it? <laughs> um, um, so that will would look. It does look different. Um, OT services in different settings and with different um, levels of severity injuries, OT can look very different. Um, it doesn't have to, and I'm sure we will delve further into that later. Um, look extremely different, but you know, a brain injury. Um, can affect all aspects of somebody's life, right? So um, it might be physical impairments as a result of somebody's brain injury. It could be cognitive impairments as a result of an injury, vision, vestibular um, symptoms that you're working with and that could interfere with your ability to do things in your life. Um, and I know that that's broad and vague because, you know, <laughs> us in the brain injury world know how broad the symptom presentation can be. Um, but whatever those barriers are to, um, say, a, 
a student returning, a high school student returning to the classroom um, or being able to complete his morning routine in order to get to school on time. Um, and, you know, an OT is going to help um, train those cognitive skills to um, help that student be able to do those things again. Um, that being said, I can go into a lot of examples if we're covering the whole spectrum of brain injury, because for the more severe injuries where we do see people with, um, you know, paralysis or hemiplegia um, after a brain injury, there's a lot of neuroreeducation interventions that we do to improve um, our clients' functional use of their arms and extremities um, as well. You know, the safety that's associated with balance impairments, vision and vestibular impairments. Um, you know, are you safe around your home if you can't see or you can't perceive your body in that space? Um, OTs are going to help retrain that safety and that independence. It sounds like your work as an occupational therapist is really about helping patients restore that delicate life balance and that sense of normalcy, which many people find they've lost after a traumatic incident. Absolutely. Um, OT services and evaluation would typically start with asking the client, what are you having trouble doing that you want to be able to do? Um, and then the evaluation goes in further as to why, why it's hard for you right then and there, you know, what are the barriers to you doing what you want to do? And let's work, let's work on those. But, um, we are big fans of quality of life and meaningful engagement in life. Um, and, uh, occupational therapists definitely don't take for granted the, um, role that our occupations, um, have on our sense of self, you know, the things that we do every day, um, they contribute to our sense of self, our identity, our self-efficacy. Um, and when you lose the ability to do some of those things that can negatively impact, um, one's identity and self-efficacy. So we're here for you. As an occupational therapist, you have dealt with a broad spectrum of brain injury some of which are very severe. While concussion is labeled a mild traumatic brain injury, for some individuals, the symptoms can be very challenging. Can you talk about how you have witnessed the spectrum of concussion in your work as an occupational therapist and how it compares to the broader spectrum of brain injuries? Yeah, certainly. Um, one thing that often surprises people is the way that we label injury severity. You know, the terms mild, moderate, and severe are given based on the immediate presentation of the individual at their time of injury. So that's looking at their level of consciousness, um, any post-traumatic amnesia, the ability to follow commands, you know, the, the Glasgow coma scale is still used um, pretty consistently across the board. Um, but that's the primary injury, you know, the physical damage to the brain and the skull. Um, and that's in like those first moments after whatever impact, car accident, hit on the field, whatever. Um, those labels don't consider the host of symptoms that present as a result of the secondary injury. You know, the secondary injury being the pathophysiological changes, the metabolic changes, inflammation, blood-brain barrier breakdown um, that happens in the brain. These changes um, haven't necessarily developed yet at that initial, that time of initial assessment, like as soon as the injury happens. Um, and so that label doesn't take into consideration what symptoms may 
develop. Um, and those, like the inflammation, the metabolic changes, those things that we talked about um, can lead to cognitive, sensory, emotional, behavioral symptoms um, that will interfere with one's functioning. You know, mild injury does not mean mild symptoms, does not mean a mild impact on someone's life. Um, we certainly know that there are many people who sustain concussions or mild traumatic brain injuries whose recovery process follows like that textbook return to learn, return to work, return to play schedule and timeline. Um, I'm not saying those, those don't exist, you know, those, um, programs were developed for a reason. Um, but in my work, um, I see people with concussion whose injury was defined at mild initially because they did not lose consciousness. Um, but who have severe executive functioning deficits. You know, they're unable to complete their morning routine, um, perform those basic homemaking tasks, um, or still suffer at work trying to fulfill those typical responsibilities. Um, the breakdown that I see most often as an OT um, is in executive functioning um, and executive function skills. So if you're not familiar with executive function skills, um, that is like someone knowing what they need to do is go through the mail, um, but are unable to break down that general task into smaller steps, um, to plan and organize and sequence that task, um, to manage their time, sustain attention to that task, to see it through, um, self-assess and monitor how it's going, recognize problems as they come up and make changes in order to successfully complete the task. You know, that being said, I've also seen people with concussion who have minimal to none um, cognitive implications, but also have, um, you know, significant visual and vestibular symptoms that interfere with everything that they do. Um, so, you know, I'm, I, I speak to that more significant mild injury because those are typically the people that as a healthcare provider seek help. <laughs> um, you know, the, the people who have injuries and they follow a typical return to place timeline don't seek medical attention. You know, things are happening like the textbook says they should. So they might follow the instructions, um, God forbid, they might just walk it off <laughs> um, and they're, they're okay. But the people it's, you know, there's a skewed sample of mild injuries that I experience as a healthcare professional, because those are the ones that recognize um, that something's up and they seek healthcare attention. Um, that being said, how that compares the full spectrum of injury severity, because again, those examples I gave are still concussions are so mild TBIs. Um, but in my experience, you know, that initial injury severity is not the indicator of how their injury will impact their daily functioning. Um, yes, in general, more severe injuries will result in more severe impairments, um, and more global impairments. However, I have worked with people with mild TBIs on the same types of functional activities that I addressed with my clients with severe TBI. Um, for example, 
um, I know I keep coming back to morning routines. Um, you know, it is, it gets your day started. It enables you to do all of the other things that you want and need to do every day. Um, my clients with severe TBIs performing their basic self-care uh, routines are typically most limited by their physical impairments. Um, they need assistance from a caregiver because they do not have functional use of their arms. Whereas a client with a mild TBI still needs assistance for their morning routine because they have difficulty with memory, initiation, task organization, and sequencing, again, sustaining attention, avoiding distractions, and managing their time. um, So the primary barriers, those primary impairments may be different, um, but assistance can be required no matter the severity of injury. Do you find that the popular perception of a concussion as a more minor injury that can be walked off uh, creates challenges in regard to patients seeking treatment and getting properly diagnosed? I do. So you mentioned a couple of things uh, there that I would like to comment on. Um, One being the invisible injury, the the nature of concussion of mild TBI. Um, And then also the... um, popular perception that concussions can just be walked off, (laughs) just shake it off, take a break. And then, then you'll come back in. Um, the invisible injury aspect of this is hard. Um, you know, it requires society. It requires other people to trust the survivor, to trust the person that's experiencing it. Um, and it is incredibly frustrating that our default is not to trust the person that's going through that experience. Um, you know, whether it is their medical professionals um, that are looking at imaging and not seeing anything wrong, um, or it's a, a coach, like a sports coach that, you know, doesn't see um blood coming out of your ears or a dent in your head or a bone sticking out that says, Oh, you're fine. Um, you know, I don't see physically anything wrong with you. So you must be fine. Um, and, uh, that the pressure that you can get from both this doctor, you know, this, um, person in the medical field that we hold in esteem and we, we give our trust and respect to telling you that he doesn't see a reason that you shouldn't be fine. Um, that puts pressure on you to just suck it up and it's like, Oh, okay. Then I must be wrong. Then you're doubting yourself. Um, because you respect this man in a white coat with a, um, medical degree that he must be right. Um, so I must be wrong. And then you start doubting yourself and doubting your symptoms. Um, but then also, you know, it, with coaches, with friends, um, parents, depending on the individual situation, um, you know, advocating, telling people that you're having these symptoms, that you're feeling this way, people have to trust you. Um, and that's ultimately all there is to it in those moments. Um, and the invisible injury, if, if we don't trust our survivors, if we don't allow them to advocate for themselves, um, but I have seen people walk off (laughs) injuries, um, that devastate others. Like it, you know, um, no two brain injuries are alike. And that's something that I learned very 
um, early through my own experience with concussions, but is consistently evident in my work professionally as well. Um, in high school, I watched my teammates walk off similar um, hits to mine, maybe stay out of school, stay out of practice for a few days and um, then get back onto their normal lives. Um, you know, the hit that they took from the outside looked much like um, the hit that I had that changed the course of my life. Um, and we can't base our recovery on the person next to us. We can't um, judge the success of our rehab or our abilities um, based on the other guy that had a concussion. You know, um, you, we, you have to trust your symptoms and trust your body, know when something is off and seek help. You know, our brains are with us for the rest of our life. We have to live in these bodies the rest of our lives. Sports, high impact activities, whatever it may be, uh, may be a big part of who someone is right now in this phase of life. Um, but you were meant to do more than just play sports. You know, you're meant to be more than an athlete. Uh, we can't compromise all that potential for another game, another goal, touchdown, round, whatever it may be. Um, that was the lesson that got through to me personally. Um, and that's now the lesson that I share as a professional, um, working with similar clients today. That certainly is a profoundly important lesson to have learned and to share with others. I know one of the big things that I have learned through my own experiences with concussion is just how lacking that education is about concussion in the general public. I know that after my accident, I did not know what to expect from my post-concussion experience, and that the people around me did not seem to fully grasp or appreciate just how severe a concussion can be and the effects it can have on a person's life. Yeah. Um, I am sorry that that's what it took for you to gain this education about it. Um, you know, I was thrust into this world because of personal experiences as well. Um, and what I have found myself saying over and over again to people um, as I've participated in advocacy efforts and events is you shouldn't have to have had a brain injury to believe me. <laughs> but it seems to be that the only, you know, at least 10 years ago, um, 12 years ago, when I was first advocating for myself, um, I, I, I found myself frustrated by that, that, you know, the only people that validated um, and it truly and acknowledged what I was saying was the people that either are already heavily involved in the brain injury community themselves um, or had had a brain injury personally. And, you know, people that had not that doubted me or rolled their eyes or um, kind of shrugged it off, what were people that had no connection to it? Um, and I know that the brain injury community has made great strides in the last decade um, in terms of bringing education and awareness um, to brain injury in general, also the risk of youth sports. Um, and I'm very appreciative of that. Um, but I still find myself saying, you shouldn't have to have had a brain injury to believe me. <laughs> Absolutely. And I think, you know, that general lack of understanding of just what a concussion can entail 
leads us to, you know, probably the least understood aspect of concussion, which is how a concussion can affect a person, not just physically, but also on an emotional and personal level. Could you talk a little bit about those lesser known symptoms? So typical symptoms of concussion that people are generally more familiar with are, you know, the headache, fatigue, dizziness, um, maybe some vision vestibular issues, general cognitive impairments like the executive functioning um, skills that we discussed earlier. Um, But in my professional work and research, um, the most lamented symptoms from both survivors and their caregiving family members um, are the emotional behavioral symptoms. Um, So some of the most notable ones are like increased anxiety, depression, increased irritability, and lowered frustration tolerance, um, flat affect. So like minimal emotional variability, disinhibition of thoughts and actions. Um, All of these, those emotional behavioral symptoms can occur organically. um, So as a result of neurological damage from a brain injury. Um, And that is separate from, but can also occur in addition to um, the emotional behavioral symptoms that you see just as a result of coping with this change and with this new normal. Um, so as a healthcare provider, I do a lot of education with families around, you know, some of this personality change that you're seeing, um, you know, yes, your loved one is going through something hard, you know, this is tough and they are coping with this, but also some of this increased irritability, frustration, um, you know, mood swings, that emotional ability, um, can, is also just brain injury. Um, that's a result of their, um, neurological damage and whether that is, um, you know, a romantic partner caring for their spouse or significant other, or, um, it's a parent child relationship. Um, these symptoms interfere with those interpersonal relationships. Um, they, make can make a survivor seem like a totally different person and these symptoms also influence a survivor's readiness for rehab their persistence with therapy are are they ready to persevere and work hard with um the physical therapist occupational therapist speech therapist you know neuropsychologist um that may be on their team you know are they emotionally able to adhere to recommendations from their providers Um, are they accepting of a graded return to activity? You know, these symptoms are very common and are crucial reasons to make sure that, um, we seek the appropriate medical care and psychology services after a brain injury of any severity, because it's not just the severe injuries where you see increased agitation. Um, you know, that increased irritability is very present in, um, survivors with mild TBI as well. Also, like I said, these symptoms are tough for caregivers to be on the um, receiving end of and are, you know, it is, they're tough to navigate and they're, it's tough to compartmentalize that in the moment as, oh, that's not him. That's not her. That's the brain injury. Um, So all more the reason for caregivers to make sure that they're seeking the support services that they need for themselves as well. Um, You know, 
in the acute phase when you're dealing with your loved one's injury, it is, it can easily become all about them, all about the survivor. Um, so caregivers seek your own help as well. (laughs) You're going through something here too. Um, you know, you, you together, if it's a family unit, if it's, um, a romantic partnership, whatever that may be, um, you all will do better together. You will rehab better together. Um, if you both have the supports that you need. Certainly. And that leads to my next question, which is one thing that makes you unique as an occupational therapist and just in general is that not only have you dealt with, uh, concussion and brain injury as a professional and in your own personal experiences, but you first encountered concussion as a family member. Could you talk a little bit about that experience and how that informed your own understanding of your own concussion experience? So my concept of concussion, my introduction to the brain injury world um, started at age nine. My mom sustained a concussion, a mild TBI, when I was nine, almost 10, um, her injury was classified as mild um, due to initial presentation, but has left lasting impact on her life um, initially and then intermittently through the years. Um, and now she had been kind of medically forced to retire early. Um, you know, her brain injury resulted in her having to be out of work at, you know, at different points, um, and has interfered with her traditional mom role in our home during some formative years of my life and my younger brother's life. You know, she has long-term autonomic nervous system dysfunction, vision and visual processing impairments, balance and vestibular issues, fatigue and sensory sensitivities, um, that have lasted for over 15 years. Um, At nine or 10 years old, I have memories of coming home from school to my mom lying on the couch in the dark, being told I couldn't go into that room. You know, I have memories of my mom missing some of those typical childhood activities, games, plays, school class things, um, because they were too much for her at that time. You know, I was like 10, so I don't have too many specific memories, but there's definitely a role shift in our family as my mom recovered from those initial symptoms of her brain injury. Um, the, uh, that initial symptom phase of her mild brain injury lasted over a year. Um, that was my introduction to concussion. So my initial concept of concussion and mild TBI was that the effects were not mild. <laughs> um, that experience and that frame of reference has enabled me to appreciate the significance of mild TBIs, to appreciate the invisible injuries and pay closer attention. Um, Both as I was experiencing it myself, I was a little bit more prepared for, I had a frame of reference for what that injury experience might be like. Um, But then now also as a clinician, um, I have that extra appreciation for the symptoms that we can't see on the outside um, of our patients. You know, I learned firsthand years ago, um, like, well, I learned firsthand years after her injury, going through it myself, that, um, most people didn't have that same understanding, um, did not appreciate the invisible symptoms as they should have. Um, and as I needed them to, you know, 
as a result of that, I take every opportunity like this one um, to share that experience, hoping to normalize that experience and bring awareness to the people that um, don't have any exposure to the more complicated um, concussion process or the more complicated, mild TBI experience. I know that your first uh, personal experience with having a concussion came from your pursuit of student athletics and an athletic career. Could you talk a little bit about how you got interested in athletics and then just how you came to suffer your own concussion? Sure. Um, so my experience in youth sports was much like most kids um, that get started in sports at a young age. You know, I tried several different sports growing up, but soccer was the one that stuck. Um, and I began playing year round for a travel club program um, in like fifth or sixth grade. Um, I played on all my school teams, eventually on the Olympic development team. Um, you know, for me, athletics soccer specifically was something that I was good at, um, and got positive feedback from coaches. And during those formative teenage youth years, being good at something, you know, that develops your self-esteem, your sense of self, self self-efficacy. Um, and in these programs, I was playing soccer six days a week. We traveled together every weekend, um, spent almost every afternoon together. So my teammates were also my social life. Um, and again, as a teenage girl, um, a strong social network was definitely a motivating factor as well, um, to, you know, continue to seriously pursue, um, soccer as a big part of my life. Um, and then in, and then I, I guess it was what, sophomore year of high school, um, in the fall season, I sustained two concussions within a few months. Um, and specifically those injuries, I was a goalkeeper, um, and it was, they were colliding with, um, forwards on the other team. Um, one concussion was, um, diving through the air and someone's knee like that was also going for the ball in the air. Um, someone's knee hit my head. And then the other one was for those that know soccer, um, was a one-on-one between myself, the goalkeeper and the forward on the other team. Um, she was dribbling, took a touch too big. So I dove in, grabbed the ball, pulled the ball out from under her, but my head landed where the ball had been. So when she went to kick the ball, my head was there instead. How did having a brain injury change your personal and social life? And how did you navigate that delicate balance between having to accommodate your condition while trying to retain some sense of normalcy? So personally, at 16, losing that adolescent sense of invincibility, um, losing a big social network, having difficulty tolerating some basic teenager activities like football games, concerts, um, struggling with some basic functions of my brain and body that I didn't even know were things until they went wrong. (laughs) Um, you know, it's incredibly disappointing and frustrating 
it was a big hit to my self-esteem and my concept of identity. Um, you know, I, I went through a grieving process. I met with my school counselor frequently to work through the general process of grief that I was feeling at 16 over something that I, at the time, didn't feel like was worthy of grief. <laughs> um, I was just, up, you know, I was just mad a lot and upset and didn't really have a um, way to process that. Um, soccer had been my life. I was, you know, like I said, six days a week. Um, I was with them. So I'm immediately after each concussion. And then when I left those teams, there was a big disconnect from my built-in social life. Um, really in the acute phase after each injury, I couldn't tolerate much socialization anyway. Um, but you still miss your friends, you know, at that time I was 16 and hanging out with doctors and therapists more than anybody else. Um, and you know, as I went, as I went on, um, and I could start to tolerate more activity, um, I tried to return to soccer as just like the team manager, because those were still all my friends. I wanted to hang out with them. Um, and so it allowed me to stay connected to the social circles and connected to sports. Um, but I didn't love that new role <laughs> and that new dynamic with my friends. Um, I went from being a teammate to now and a teammate, you know, and somebody that they counted on as an equal part of the team to the person that carried the equipment and got them water. <laughs> um, so that was just a reminder of all the things I couldn't do. Um, so that was hard. And honestly, most of those friendships kind of fizzled. Um, but I was also taking that time of my life as an opportunity to explore other interests of mine um, and ended up creating new friendships. I got heavily involved in a community service organization that after stepping back from soccer and developed new friendships with people who didn't know me as the girl with the concussions. Um, I found another passion of mine, something I was good at, um, and that provided the social and personal fulfillment um, just in a new way. I know that one thing that I found really challenging was the way in which my injury made me have to take a step back from the things that were going on in my life. How did you deal with that process of having to make those changes and adjustments to your personal and social life in the face of all the pressure we all face from ourselves and from society to achieve? So I was definitely one of those people Type A um, was very goal oriented, um, was juggling a lot of extracurriculars, was a straight A student, um, and had my sights set on collegiate sports. Um, and so being forced to take a step back, not only from sports, but from, you know, the rate at which I was doing academics um, as well, like I was. 16 and mad. Um, and, but ultimately the biggest thing that helped me was sitting down with Dr. Greg Oshanik, um, in his office, as we talked through, um, the two concussions that I had had, this was after my second one. And my second one was significantly worse than my first in terms of my symptom presentation. Um, 
So, you know, I had that prior knowledge of concussion from my mom's brain injury experience. Um, and when, and then I had my first concussion. And so I was meeting with Dr. Oshanik after my second one. Um, so my prior knowledge of concussion meant that I knew it could get a lot worse. Um, so when my second concussion was worse than my first, and I had seen, and was actively watching my mom, um, still struggling with hers from six or seven years before, you know, and now in front of me, I have this doctor warning me about the risks of the third, what a third injury could do. You know, I believed him. I was, I was seeing it play out in front of me. Um, you know, I saw the path that I was headed down. So it didn't take much convincing or fighting um, with my parents for me to agree to make that lifestyle change. Um, you know, Dr. Oceanic, you know, the advocacy for um, prioritizing your long-term goals. Like, you know, he sat there and asked me at 16 years old, what were my long-term goals in life? What did I want to do? Um, was it to play soccer forever? <laughs> um, you know, he told me, you know, you're meant to do more than play soccer. You're meant to be more than this. Um, and, but a third and another hit going back on the field and risking another injury could mean compromising all that potential. Um, and that's what got through to me. That was what made the adjustment an easier process. Um, because, you know, even if like, I didn't have those things figured out at 16, I didn't know exactly what it was, but I knew it wasn't going to be play soccer for the rest of my life. <laughs> um, so it, so prioritizing those long-term goals, that long-term drive and, um, aspiration over the short-term priority of going back on the field for one more game, one more goal, or, um, you know, that, that wasn't a tough sell despite all the pressure that, you know, I was getting, um, from teammates to get back on the field and teachers in school. Um, I was in a specialty center high school program, um, that was a faster pace and a more robust academic curriculum, um, which was challenging, more challenging in a lot of ways at that time. Um, but I was also fortunate to be in that kind of school setting because there were naturally smaller class sizes and naturally more individualized learning happening. Um, and so I was able to work that out more informally, um, with my academic program, with those teachers. Um, you know, as I mentioned before, that was still before the return to learn programming. Um, so my collaborating, my, you know, my parents and my teachers, um, and I all together, my teachers were understanding, um, they were flexible and, I am very grateful for them at that time um, because I don't know what that would have looked like. Otherwise we, you know, we didn't have to go through formal um, like section um, like the formal accommodations pr um, protocol. You know, my teachers were just flexible and made some modifications to my assignments and my coursework. Um, and I was able to event to catch back up and then, participate in the more typical curriculum, um, after a few months, but, um, 
That being said, I'm going to take this opportunity as a quick plug to say that professionally, I do recommend that people legitimize the accommodations that they need um, so that there is some accountability for teachers and schools. Quick plug. That is a very important point because, you know, you are the only person who knows what you are experiencing and it's not a broken leg. It's not something other people can see. So you really do have to engage in that self-advocacy to get the help that you need. Clearly, though, you were able to overcome the academic and personal challenges you were experiencing to build a career in occupational therapy and medicine. How did your own relationship with concussion and brain injury influence your decision to pursue a career in occupational therapy? Um, so I was actually introduced to occupational therapy at a time when I was actively working to not let my brain injury history define me. Um, I was introduced to OT through my cousin who has autism and seeing the impact that her OT had on her life and their whole family's daily lives um, and loved it from there. From there. Um, it, I was then later after I decided I wanted to be an OT, um, and was applying to OT schools and needed, you know, some just extra experience shadowing hours. Um, and I ended up connected back with Dr. Oshanik for shadowing hours and then worked, um, and then got a job there. So while working in that setting, I discovered a unique therapeutic use of self, um, and empathy and understanding for this population because of my personal experience. Um, I felt a sense of purpose when I started working professionally um, with people going through things similar to what I had gone through, you know, and I still feel that I sense the exacerbations of invisible symptoms. I pick up on those nuanced nonverbal signs, um, maybe pay attention to specific functional health indicators like sleep um, better than I would have otherwise because I felt it myself or because I watched my mom, um, feel it, you know, I, I can't say that I have been through what my patients with severe TBIs have, you know, the, the severe physical impairments, um, severe language impairments, nor have I experienced the, you know, intense emotional behavioral symptoms, but as a result of my personal history and through the engagement with the Brain Injury Association of Virginia um, that I've had as a result of my own personal experiences. I have been involved in the community that is validated and advocated for and normalized all like, you know, the wide, broad range of um, brain injury sequelae that, as that, you know, have become part of my personal and professional concepts of brain injury. One thing you and I have discussed about your career and study as an occupational therapist is your research into the effects of brain injury and concussion on people's relationships on a personal and romantic level. Could you speak about what you learned through that research? Yeah, um, absolutely. So a frequently overlooked and underappreciated effect from mild injuries is the the impact that injuries have on romantic or on interpersonal relationships, um, whether that's romantic relationships, friendships, parent-child relationships. Um, 
I conducted a mixed method study investigating specifically the impact of mild traumatic brain injuries on romantic relationships. Um, this was incorporating both the survivors and caregivers um, points of view. Um, and this, you know, I had gotten sort of an introduction. I gotten interested in this topic as a result of watching my parents um, go through my mom's brain injury and how that changed, you know, our nuclear family function. Um, but then the results of the study have very much informed my professional practice and my concept of brain injury and the advocacy work that I personally do. Um, so thank you for throwing this question in, into this interview. <laughs> um, but yeah, so a couple of like the big, um, results that I would like from that study that I would like to hit on, um, are that just in the demographic data gathered from participants. So all these participants, um, you know, there was 42 participants, um, and of them, they had all, they all had mild TBIs. Um, however, in assessing one of, you know, the quantitative assessments that we did as part of the study was looking at the symptom severity resulting in functional limitations. So, you know, how bad is my fatigue? Like how much of the time does fatigue impact your ability to do functional activities? Um, and so despite having all of these people having mild TBI diagnoses um, of all the relationships assessed, only 12% reported symptom severity resulting in mild to moderate functional limitations. And 88% of relationships reported symptom severity resulting in moderate to severe functional limitations. So that right there should be an indicator that an evidence that mild injury does not mean mild functional limitations. Um, this, you know, a big result that came out of this study was um, that there, these couples, caregivers and survivors alike, indicated a significantly lower relationship satisfaction score post-injury. Um, caregiver satisfaction was rated lower than survivors um, as well. So again, something to keep in mind um, as both professionals um, and um, survivors and caregivers that are going through this, that um, if you're feeling that way, you're not alone. Um, and that don't feel like you're alone. Don't feel guilty for it. Um, but you know, let's do something about it. <laughs> um, the discussion, the qualitative component, the interviews that I conducted as part of the study, um, yielded five salient themes, um, you know, participants, both the caregivers and survivors referenced changes in self changes in the survivor's sense of self, um, or who, who that's who the survivor is, you know, effects of the brain injury on the romantic relationships, strategies that they had implemented, advice for future couples enduring the brain injury experience, um, and also commentary on the resources available um, for the relationship component of rehabilitation after injury. Um, you know, the changes in self and personality, participants would reference. Um, a previous identity or a previous self to which they now compare, they compare their new self or their partners. Um, you know, survivors would share the sentiment 
um, of, I don't know who I am anymore. Um, I live in someone else's world, someone else's body. Um, you know, comparisons would be made to previous personalities or productivity levels, their previous abilities, um, and their contribution to the relationship now compared to themselves pre-injury. Um, you know, and their survivors would comment on how their caregiving partner doesn't understand their experience and doesn't understand how they've changed. Um, and that absolutely places stress on a relationship. Um, you know, and that is just the changes in the survivor, right? That's just, um, like just personality based effects, you know, the other more traditional symptoms of brain injury still affect the relationship. Also, you know, headache, fatigue, executive function, deficits, irritability, depression, you know, those symptoms weigh on interpersonal interactions and romantic connection. Um, frustration was a common experience recognized by both caregivers and survivors, you know, um, some people would like a couple of the interviewees, um, you know, commented that we don't have a romantic relationship anymore. You know, that was the worst thing that I lost, Bef you know, before the injury, um, things were even like 50, 50, and now it's more like a 90, 10 and I don't hold up my end anymore. Um, you know, caregivers don't feel like they get to take any time off that they have to be on all the time. Um, referencing like a change in relationship dynamic from equal partners to now more of a superior inferior role, like a parent child, um, kind of dynamic. Well, it's certainly easy to imagine how someone becoming more dependent on their partner, along with all the other life changes that come with concussion could radically alter the dynamics of a relationship. Absolutely. Um, you know, people talk about that the, it's not just the physical intimacy that is affected, you know, it's, um, but that, that role shift, when you feel more like a caregiver's kid or, and vice versa, feel like their parent, you know, that physical intimacy, um, is challenged there. Um, and that drive, you know, to, to engage, you know, physical intimacy can suffer due to both the physical and the psychological reasons. Um, you know, that, and that just further compromises that role delineation. If that component of a romantic relationship is lost, um, then the dynamic of an interpersonal relationship is going to shift away from, um, a sexual relationship, you know, uh, survivors, I have clients that talk about like the vertigo, um, as a symptom impacting, um, that their ability to engage in sexual activity because of um, sex having to become careful and calculated and avoiding certain positions, um, taking away the naturalness and the fun spontaneity out of it. Um, you know, depression and anxiety absolutely affect libido and sex drive, fatigue, headache, vision and vestibular impairments interfere with it being able to enjoy those activities. You know, if you feel like the world is spinning around you every time you lay down, you know, that's not a great facilitator for sexual intimacy with a partner. Um, you know, medications that people are often on after a brain injury, um, 
you know, can affect libido, sex drive, the physiological functioning of um, genitalia. Additionally, you know, people talked about their schedules being so consumed with medical appointments and lawyers appointments and buying a new car. And um, I have all of these therapies to do. So, you know, that disrupting that taking up time that might've been, you know, intimate time, just on the couch at the end of the night, cuddling and watching TV or going out on date nights. And, um, you know, that's disrupting their routine, um, opportunities for companionship for that intimacy to be built. Um, so that's a very real experience, you know, through your research, were you able to identify any methods or strategies that were able to help these couples adjust to how brain injury had affected their romantic and interpersonal relationships? Yeah, I would not want to land or end on such a such a downer <laughs> of a report. Um, so yes, as part of the qualitative interview components of that study, you know, that it was very cool to see that while these survivors and these caregivers, these partners had, you know, significant complaints and significant concerns, um, that they had started to identify strategies. Um, and that was just, they had been figuring this out themselves. Um, and so I'm going to start with the ones from survivors perspective, because I, that is the most authentic, um, you know, people, I have a list of quotes here, um, just so I make sure I'm representing their voices appropriately. Um, that, you know, in general, we pick each other up. I pick up the slack, you know, this is coming from a caregiver. Um, you know, I remind myself that she's doing the best she can. I accept where she's at and I choose to focus on her 40 other good qualities. You know, um, you know, she might be different in these ways, but I also can look at her and name 50 other things that, I still love about her um, and that she is still my wife. She, you know, she's still the woman I married, um, you know, reminding each other that we're going to be okay. We're going to get there, that we're going through tough, something hard, but we love each other. And this is what for better, for worse means. <laughs> you know, um, but so these couples identify like determination, positivity, and teamwork still being crucial components for their success. Um, and for them to continue working and rehabbing together. Um, you know, uh, some more explicit strategies that they discussed um, was that, you know, everything's on the calendar. <laughs> we write down everything, um, you know, everything I'm going to do that day, including sitting on the couch at the end of the night, watching TV with my husband and making sure that, um, if in the evening, it's okay if other things haven't gotten done, but this is still on my to-do list. So I'm going to do that. Um, and that over time that became more of a normal, natural routine and not something I had to put on my to-do list. Um, you know, people had talked about learning what they can cope with, you know, learning what, where they're going to choose to expend their energy. You know, I, people who used to change the sheets, um, every three to four days on the bed now change our sheets every seven to eight days on the bed, you know, or, and we pay someone else to clean the house now um, because that's not something I can manage if I want to also prioritize, um, you know, quality time with my husband. 
If we want to spend the day together on Saturday, somebody else needs to clean the house because I can't do both anymore. Um, that really speaks to the type of adjustments which people have to make in their life and consider after a concussion and how finding that balance and new normal is really an active rather than a passive experience. It absolutely is. And it may come naturally to some people more than it does to others. And that's okay. Um, those strategies that they discussed are interventions that we as OTs also do with our patients. So, you know, it's okay if that doesn't come naturally to you, but working, seeking out the supports from healthcare providers and resources can also help you get there. You know, I work with my patients on identifying those things on it's, you know, energy conservation strategies on positioning, um, techniques on bed mobility, you know, bed mobility also helps you, you know, either get out of bed in the morning, relieve pressure, but it also helps with your sexual activity and relationship building with your significant other, um, you know, identifying that you can't clean the whole house and shower and do the laundry and go out for dinner that night. So like, how do we modify your schedule? Let's look at your week and how can we schedule this out? You know? Um, so one strategy that I'm going to say is an OT is find an OT, <laughs> um, or psychologist or, you know, a appropriate rehab professional that can help you structure this. You know, these couples that I spoke with, um, didn't have a professional to introduce them to these concepts or prepare them for this potential reality as a part of their injury, um, experience. And, you know, they were so excited to be a part of the study as a, as a voice, as an opportunity to tell the healthcare community, to tell brain injury providers that we need these services. We need someone to ask us these questions and help us through this part, you know, no, people get squirmy around the conversation of sex and intimacy and um, my relationship with my husband, you know, we're married and we're 50, so we must just be fine. Um, but we're not. And um, so, you know, they appreciated the opportunity to speak about it as part of the study. Um, and um, as an OT now, this absolutely is in the forefront of my evaluations and interventions, um, to make sure that these things aren't brushed under the rug. Um, and we don't, as healthcare providers, don't just ignore them. Um, you know, so I, I advocate for that at, you know, professionally, but I'm also, you know, if, as there are survivors and caregivers listening to these, um, audio resources, don't be afraid to ask those questions as well. You know, the onus is absolutely on the professional as the professional, um, but they professionals get squeamish about it too. push them, power through it, break the ice, ask the question, advocate for yourself and what your needs are um, or, or find the ones that are, you know, find the ones that are open to it. Um, I promise you we're out there um, and are absolutely do not want this to fall to the wayside just because people are uncomfortable talking about it. What advice would you give to someone who's just starting off in their process of learning what it's like to live with a concussion? My advice, and I think there are a couple of key themes that I, 
have discussed throughout our conversation today. Don't just push through it. Don't just walk it off. If your brain and your body are telling you something different, trust yourself and what you're feeling, you know, seek out the concussion specialists to make sure that you get a thorough evaluation and you know, what's really going on. Um, you know, I found my new path in the brain injury community, but that's not the only option after a concussion. You know, I'm not here to say that, um, for years, I actively worked to separate myself from the brain injury, from my brain injury history, you know, not wanting it to define me. Um, for me, soccer had been my thing for so many years and I didn't have time to explore those other interests. Um, but if so, stepping back from sports or modifying your regular activities, um, is what's going to be best for you after your injury, use this as an opportunity to explore and get to try out different interests. You know, like I said, ultimately keep in mind your long-term goals. Don't compromise them for your short-term priorities. You were meant to do more than play that next game um, or go to that next concert. It is, it's okay if you don't know what those long-term goals are right now, um, but explore what those might be. Um, take, you know, take this as in, as that opportunity. If we shift our mindset from a fixed mindset to a growth mindset, you know, we'll find the silver linings. You'll find the opportunities that are going to come from this experience. I think that's a wonderful note to leave it on. Thank you so much for being here with us today, Riley. And thank you so much for uh, sharing your own personal journey through concussion. Riley's struggles with concussion are all too common. And if you or someone you know has had a concussion and is still facing difficulties, we recommend getting in touch with your primary care doctor or you can visit the Brain Injury Association of Virginia's online resource directory for a list of referrals in your area at biav.net slash resource dash directory. If you're interested in learning more about the Brain Injury Association of Virginia, we invite you to browse to the website at biav.net. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, or give us a call at 1-800-444-6443. Thank you for listening.